Welcome to another episode of Mama Earth Talk. I'm your host, Maris Canal. Realizing just how much waste we generate on a daily basis, I've set a personal goal not only to reduce, reuse, and recycle, but to also educate the world about sustainability and how each of us can help preserve our beautiful planet. Thanks for listening. Let's dig in. Hello, crazy birds. I hope you guys are doing well. I am super excited that you guys are here and very excited about this guest that's going to be on the podcast today. This guest, along with her partner, Tim, are from Ecoburbia a business that's aimed at creating more sustainable and resilient communities. Their work ranges from presenting workshops on good solar house design at local councils to inspiring corporate executives to introduce a worm farm to the office kitchen. They are aware that developing community is essential to this work and so make sure there is lots of interaction, fun, and play in whatever they are doing. Ecoburbia won Fremantle Chamber of Commerce Award in 2011 and a West Australian Best Small Business Environmental Award the same year. She was also Fremantle's Citizen of the Year in 2011. The next year, they were honoured to win the Australian-wide Bankscare Award for Excellence in Small Business. Discovering that awards made very little difference to her life, she stopped applying for them. And in content, milking goats, talking to her neighbours and tending to her garden. During this episode, we talk about her journey from school principal to sustainability guru, as well as the importance of community. And we also look at some of the ways that we can build community where we are and dig into urban agriculture and how it can actually help maintain a sustainable community. Crazy birds, without any further ado, I would like to welcome Shani Graham. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I'm so excited to actually have you on the podcast. I mean, geez, I've learned quite a lot from you over the last few weeks and just excited to like dig into your journey and like how everything started. So would you mind just sharing with our crazy birds actually how your sustainable journey started? People talk about it as their end of suburbia moment. Like at which point did they realize that, oh my God, the world's not going to continue the way that it is now. So if you can imagine in 2007, I'm a very hardworking, stressed out school principal down at Fremantle Primary School. My partner has started to watch a lot of environmental movies and he did. He watched one called End of Suburbia which talks about the fact that our suburbs are really quite unsustainable as far as transport and supplying services to them. This urban sprawl thing that we do, it just can't continue. And he also was exposed to the concept of peak oil during that movie, that concept of the fact that we can't continue to grow because the cheap energy source that we have is not going to be available. 
So he started hammering at me saying, we need to do something about this. We need to screen this movie. We need to do this. We need to make our lives more sustainable. And I really pushed back a lot and said, I'm busy. I'm educating children for the future. I, I can't do anything more than what I'm doing. Until the point that I got so stressed that I took some time off. And during that time off, it was a real time of sort of reflection. And we decided to really change our lives, lives around quite dramatically and become, I suppose, we just started wanting to do everything we could as a sort of moral stance, not necessarily worrying about if anyone else followed us or whatever, but kind of going, if we know this, we have to morally do something. So that was the beginning of our journey. And it's amazing since then how many people I've met who've had such similar stories where there was some sort of maybe health point or a move or a new relationship or something that changed in their life that made them really start on a more sustainable path. Wow, that's fantastic to hear as well. And I mean, for me, it's it's something that you said in there as well. Like once you've realized all of this is happening and like you, you're also kind of a part of this like problems, you know, you just can't stand back and look at your life and keep on doing everything that you used to do knowing that it's wrong. Like I think, you know, it takes a really, really special kind of person to be able to do that. Like I can't, like the moment I realized so many stuff's wrong and also realized that I can make small changes to actually really, you know, have an impact as well on our life as well as the the lives around us. So that's amazing. But yeah, you guys have been on this journey for some time now. Not as long as the people who've been worried about this since the 1970s or the Limits to Growth book, which came out in the 60s. So, well, it feels like a long time for us, but so many people have been concerned about this so, so long. And it is good to see it becoming more mainstreamers. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like today, as we are talking, there's so many protests happening as well in Perth, where we are with the students actually standing up and, you know, demanding change. So, so yeah, so that's quite, quite interesting for me to see how you've gone from this like school principal to a sustainability guru. And you guys have actually started something really special in Fremantle and it is called Ecoburbia. And I would love for you to tell our crazy birds a little bit more about what exactly is Ecoburbia. I'm so glad I'm on a podcast, Mariska, because it takes a little bit of explaining sometimes. And if I have to only say one sentence, it's a bit hard. So Ecoburbia is a business. It's a house. It's a sort of community group all kind of rolled up into one. And I suppose it's the lifestyle that Tim and I have chosen to take. So our goal over all of those things is to create more resilient and connected So we've gone past the point of thinking we will fix this by doing all these things to thinking how can we build resilient communities so when it does get tough or when we all have to learn to live on less energy or when we don't have cheap food available or when there is no plastic recycling or whatever it is, we can join together as community to do that. So that might be learning about composting, that might be learning about basic food production, it might be learning about solar passive design, might be learning about water, and we offer workshops on all of those things. Some of those workshops come from the local council, 
that's sort of the business side of what we do. Some we do here for free for our own local community. Our favorite workshop is the one that you were involved with, the Living Smart Workshop. And I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about that a bit later. We also have Ecoburbia as a place. So what we've done is there's an old Italianate house that we bought on a quarter acre block, it's a thousand square meters. And there are not many of them around left in the suburbs anymore. So traditionally what would happen is a developer would come in, they'd bulldoze the house, they'd build two or three little units, log them all off, no garden, no trees, no nothing. And we managed to grasp this one from the hands of a developer. And what we've done is we've said, let's see if we can house the same number of people, but in smaller homes. So we've split the house up into six. So there's six separate living areas. They all have their own independent bathroom, kitchen, living area, bedroom. Some are just in one room. They range from about 50 square metres up to down to 16 square metres. And we share that as a kind of mini community run by benevolent dictatorship. So it's not like an intentional community where you sit around, hold hands, talk about which toilet paper to buy. I buy the toilet paper. Everyone just uses who gives a crap. (laughs) And we rent them out to people. So they don't actually own per se, but they rent from us. Okay. So that's. That's a really interesting model for a lot of baby boomers who have children who've left home. They know they should be moving to a smaller house, but they want to stay within their community as well. Yeah, exactly. Especially if you've been living in that community for 20, 30 years and you know everyone, then, you know, just being shipped off to an old age home somewhere, it's very, very hard for many people. Yeah, and it also allows you to age in place. So my parents, my father's passed away, but my mother is aging and she's needing more and more support. And as I age here, I'm going to be able to put a nurse in the room next door. And she, as part of her rent, she'll come in, give me my shower every morning, set me up in front of the telly, leave me there, you know, someone else can come and cook my dinner or whatever. So we will be able to be less dependent on a centralised system that may not exist into an uncertain economic future and um, be able to stay where we are embedded in the community that we're in. And that's the other uh, sort of the fifth aspect of Ecoburbia is that community. I hate hate to call it work because it's actually just pleasure. So we do a lot of things in our local community. Uh, We have a community of about 350 houses around us. We're called the West Beaky Bunch. We'll probably talk a little bit more detail, I imagine, about that. But those are the sort of five aspects to um, Ecoburbia itself. And I love that. And that is something that, you know, we don't see every day. And probably a lot of our crazy birds that's listening to this episode, if you just have to ask them, listen, who is your neighbor on the right, left and across maybe the back of where you are? Or if you're, you're in an apartment building, do you even know the guy that lives next door? You know, so a lot of us um, have grown custom to like, you know, we stay in our space. We don't go out. You know, you don't talk to those weird people that drives the funny car down the road or, you know, this person looks like they're always angry. You know, maybe I should not interact with them. Something that you've done and that I've had the privilege to look at, and I'll link it up for our Crazy Birds as well, was a TED Talk, which talked about community. 
the community that you guys build in Freear. And I wanted to kind of dig a little bit deeper in that and like kind of get into why. Why was building that community so important to you? Thanks. I love talking about it. So that's great. I gave a talk recently about waste and they were expecting me to come and talk to bins about bins and plastic free and kind of thought, I don't, I don't want to talk about that stuff. I want to expand our concept of waste. And so we moved into fossil fuels. We moved into wasting water. And then we moved into the waste in our suburbs. And Howard Kunstler talks about them about it and says it's the greatest misallocation of resources in the history of mankind. But yet David Holgram, the co-founder of permaculture, talks about the huge resource in the suburbs that's the sweet spot between inner city living and the country. So let's look at what we see as waste in the suburb. We have wasted roads and road space. We have wasted green space that are used rarely by people. We have wasted potential for sharing of resources amongst people and we are wasting people when it comes to mental health. And I think that that became apparent in COVID where some people really loved the solitude and the ability to reflect and spend time at home, but others were not Mm -hmm. and were really feeling quite lonely and bereft with that. So for me personally, community building is about all of those things. It's about my mental health and helping and knowing, you know, to just walk out of your door. Like I could walk out of my door crying and about three people would come out of the houses to say, what's the matter? Or I could have goats born and be stressed out with having to milk them or whatever. And people would be bringing me meals like I just had a baby and both those things have actually happened to me. (laughs) But even more so than that, it's the sharing of resources. So in Holbert Street, I tell the story of the skills and resource register that we had where no one needs to buy a wheelbarrow. So-and-so has a wheelbarrow, so-and-so has a wheelbarrow. It's listed down there, go and borrow that. Now, what are we saving as far as landfill at the end of something's life, at the saving of human connection, and just the saving of the resources not having to make all those things that we feel we need to have? In traditionally, a village would not be all having a wheelbarrow. You would all have some of those things that would be shared. So cars are a prime example. I needed vehicles at a time when everyone else was just sitting at home because I needed them at night. They needed them during the day. So why why wouldn't we be sharing those things in a really informal way? And then... I think one day things will get really hard. So I reckon one day we won't have the power grid that we have now that is able to continually supply us with power. So if the power goes off, I want to know the old lady down the road and invite her into our house. I want to get together with the people who have the solar panels and the batteries and say, please come to my place. It's really hot. Let's put on one air conditioner. Let's make sure everyone's got water or whatever it is that they need to be able to kind of keep going in that situation. So my motivations were many and they're often, I often say they're purely selfish. So (laughs) I developed community for selfish, selfish reasons. 
I mean, there's so much amazing stuff that has come out of this community. And one of the things that you also mentioned during the TED Talk was, for example, the like a printer. You know, if we just look at our own houses, so many people, every single one probably has a printer. And my mom, hopefully she's not listening to this episode, but she always complains about her printer. And my husband always has to like via teams or something work on it because then she's lost it and she needs to reinstall it and I'm just like oh my gosh we don't have a printer anymore if I need to go and print something I either find someone that you know can print it for me or I would go to the store and they've they've pretty much set up to print as well so you know you don't need to have every single thing to use it maybe that one or two times a year and it just frees up so much space in your house as well where you can actually have stuff that you really use and share that again with the community and just by learning who is in your community and you know, maybe you don't have great sewing skills, but your next door neighbor is an expert in that. So, you know, you can kind of share on that and get some advice. Or even if you've got an issue with, I don't know, putting on a um, button, you know, for example, just go and, and build that community. And next time they need something, you know, maybe you'd be in a position to offer something in return. So yeah, I just loved how that all worked. And I have asked you this many times, if there's any, <laughs> any vacant properties around you, because I would love to be part of that bunch as well. So with Eco Ecoburbia, you guys have created a lot within that house as well that you are currently in. And one of the things that I've sh- I've seen a lot is this extremely long table that you have in your house. Yeah, I would love to know exactly what that is kind of used for because there's so many different activities. And what other stuff do you offer for the community as well at like Ecoburbia? Well, the table is in a rather large, what we call community room. And it's funny, it's a long table because that's the way we store the chairs. <laughs> so <laughs> if we don't have that really long table in there, then we can't store 25 chairs around it. So that's why the long table's there, although we do use it quite a lot. So that was set up originally as a common shared space for the people that live here. Everyone lives here in quite small dwellings. And so if they want to have a big family party or if they want to get together for something, then that room is is available for them to do that. So that's one of the purposes. It also has a kitchen. So we have one extra kitchen and the woofers are willing workers on organic farms and they're volunteers that come and stay with us and work on the property in exchange for accommodation. And they use that kitchen and that common room. So it's there's a permaculture principle around one element, many functions. And so the room serves as an extra space for the people who live here. It serves as a space for the woofers that come. And it also serves as a space for sort of community activities. So we run a co-working group on a Tuesday where people who work from home come along. We set up at the table We have very strict break times, so everyone finds it very efficient because there's all these people they can ignore. And then in the break time, they get to converse with people in a way that they don't get to when you're doing a lot of work from home. Wednesday morning, it's used for a yoga group. Sundays, there's often, this Sunday, there's going to be a meeting of the Milbourne Street Gorilla Gardening Group where they're 
we're talking about planting some more olive trees. On Thursdays, there's a permaculture design group that are using the space for their classroom teaching. Next month, we have a lady who's establishing a food, uh, teaching people how to cook in their own home business. So she's doing a freebie for the West Beaky Bunch, and we're going to make sure we've got some really good photos for her. So it just allows us to have a space without having to move everything around in your living room. It's like a mini community centre on a very, very small scale. Again, with no committees, so it makes life a bit easier for organising. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I know. Sometimes it can be a bit hard if you need to organize something and go through, get all the permissions and, you know, that that can be quite hard. And I mean, you guys also offer some movie nights. I've seen some of those epic photos with you guys blocking off streets and like that was still in, in Holbert Street and now as well with the new property where you guys just like bring the community together. Like how often do you screen some of these films? We haven't been screening any for a while, actually, which is terrible. We should, we should start up again. We started in 2008 and we screened a movie every month until I think about 2014. And it was very low key. It was There was an email list. We sent out an email. People came along. Towards the end, I think we started charging $5, but we basically would donate any costs. I'm a really big one in not pirating movies. So they were all sort of local or international low-budget filmmakers and we screened them here. We designed the front of our property so that there's a help-yourself herb garden and then there's tiered seating that goes down to a driveway and then on one side of the driveway we screened sort of the movies. We haven't been doing that. This is in summer, obviously. In winter we do them inside. We haven't as many lately because my partner has been getting into music. He started a little group called the Alfalfa Males and they sing a lot of songs about sustainability issues, his thoughts on things. They've just done one on male depression, composting, growing your own food, goats. He's got a lot of different songs around aspects of what we're doing here at Ecoburbia. And so we then decided what we'd try and do was support local musicians. So we get Locals come, they do a house concert. We've got a big setup there. We've got a guy that does the sound. So it's quite it's quite a palaver, <laughs> but um really lovely way of involving not only our local kind of small community, but a bit wider than that. So as far as the West Beaky Bunch goes, we've decided we're going to film. So we do two every summer and we're filming classic children's movies that they might not have seen. So The Wizard of Oz was the last one. We screened E.T., we screened Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So something that parents and adults can come and enjoy as well, but the kids might not have seen it. Oh, that's so cool. So, Shani, you guys also offer some tours as well. So people can, like, if you want to live there, they, you know, do check out. Sometimes you guys have availability as well, but you offer some tours. So people can actually come and see what it really is like to live, you know, sustainably as well. Can you tell us more about how people can actually get in touch with or how do they know about these tours? Well, the best thing to do is probably join our email list uh, or one of two things is to follow us on Facebook. Just today I started using Instagram properly, so I'm excited about that. (laughs) 
So Facebook or Instagram, I'll always say, look, the tour's on if we've got places available. We offer them to Living Smart participants first and then to the general community if, if we've got space. And we do that four times a year. The tours are the best thing to do if you can get into one because you get to see into everyone's houses. Do offer if people are from our eastern states or really desperate to see around for some reason, we do offer just a one-hour sort of look around. And what we've done with that is rather than charging, we tend to just say, okay, if you can come at this time, that's great. I'll see if anyone else wants to come at that time. So you sort of get your own tour, but it's not as detailed. And what we do is we just, we charge, in inverted commas, people a meal. So one of my lack of skills, like sewing on buttons, I can <laughs> sew on buttons, but I'm not. So the concept of cooking and the idea of cooking is a chore for me. I grow a lot of my own food, but I still don't like the cooking aspect. So what we do with the tours is we just trade for a meal. So bring a meal for two for us and then um, you can come and do the tour. Oh, awesome. Well, that sounds fantastic. And um, you guys have some really cool animals at Ecoburbia, like really, really special ones. Can you tell us more about them? Sure. Well, we have chickens like lots of people do. And the chickens live in their pen with two goats, Pumpkin and Lady Marmalade. So we have, I've since found out we have the second, there are two legal goat stables in Fremantle now, but we had the first for about six years and we were very lucky. Our local council, when I approached them, I approached them through the mayor. I find with when you're wanting to do something a bit on the margins, it's kind of good sometimes to start with the top rather than having to start with the officers that need to follow the rules. So we went from the mayor down to the head of health. He said, look, we don't have legislation in Fremantle, so let's look at the state legislation. Despite what everyone said, it actually wasn't that hard to meet all the requirements except for one, and that was that the animals had to be 20 metres from any other property. So I said, what if we get permission from all the neighbours that are that close and a tacit kind of approval that if there's a problem, they'll come and see us and not the council. And they said, yeah, if you can do that, we'll grant you a license. So they did that and we have a large animal license for Pumpkin and Lady Marmalade. And you guys actually take them for walks as well, like in down, you know, in the normal street, like what is the feedback? Because like when I go out with Piper for a walk, everyone's like, oh, she's so cute, cute. But I can imagine, you know, walking down with two goats, that's a whole different story. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends on whether you live in the area or not. If we also, we also walk them right in the middle of the road. So I don't have to scoop up their poo all the time, tends to just get run over by cars and disappears. Whereas trying to hold back a 20, sorry, a 70, kilo goat while you scoop up the little pellets of poo that they've just done is a extreme and very difficult act so yeah so we walk them we've got a little they've got three or four little walks that they do one down to the local playground one around several of the main streets here and people who know them will just sort of toot their horns slow down you know it also slows down traffic in the community which is really nice and those who don't, it's really funny. You can tell who doesn't live here because they hang out of their car with the camera taking photos of the um, strange lady with the goats. 
Oh, I love that. We actually used to have a goat when I was growing up, a very small one. Yeah, so it, it's it's really unique to, you know, kind of be part of that whole journey with them. And um, I mean, with you guys as well, they are your pets, but it's also kind of, you know, still a productive animal because they still have, you know, they kind of jobs that they do within your ecoburbia. Can you tell us a little bit more about how they fit in that whole puzzle? <laughs> Again, we go back to that one element, many functions. For us, they're productive animals first, and we try and keep remembering that they are a productive animal. And they're quite a, they were quite a common productive animal in the suburbs in the 50s and 60s, especially an area that had large herds. So they supply us with milk. And then from that milk, I can make cheese. They eat branches that we then mulch and are able to use as the bedding for their their pen. They provide their real community um, asset as far as that goes. When they have their babies every year, there's just great excitement around that. And they're also amazing animals. I mean, I birthed pumpkin. She was stuck and I had to put my hands up there and pull her out. And so she and I have a connection that is very special. But at the same time, they're a productive animal. So that is very cheap because we go to Murdoch University and they have a productive animal units where the students come and they will find out what's wrong with the goat and practice on our goats. And so that's really wonderful. But Yeah, sometimes it's harsh if we have a goat who is no longer able to produce babies or have babies or milk, then we find homes for them and very easy to find homes for them because they're such good pets. They've been so well socialized. But yeah, that's very hard to say goodbye to a friend as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, geez, but that's that's quite interesting. And I'm looking forward to actually meeting them in the next week or two. I can't remember when I'm heading over there. Uh, Next weekend. So with COVID, a lot of people also started to kind of realize the importance about where their food is actually coming from. And it really inspired many people to, you know, kind of get their hands dirty and, you know, play in the soil and actually start growing their own food. And that kind of brings me to urban agriculture that's, you know, beginning to flare up and many more people want to do it like but for you specifically why was urban agriculture important to you for many reasons for health reasons it is a passion of mine to garden and so to be able to have the space to be able to do that is quite wonderful there's also a resilience area there where you are not as reliant on a centralized food system I mean, I think a lot of people they're thinking during COVID was there is three days food in the shops. So if suddenly trucks can't move and that didn't happen in COVID, but I think a lot of people knew that and sort of thought about that. So there's definitely a self-reliance and resilience kind of aspect to it as well. I find gardening, especially gardening out the front of your house, a real community builder. And most of the stuff I've learned about gardening has come from other people where I've been talking to them, hey, what's going on with this or what's going on with that? And even now, I'd prefer to hop on my favorite gardening Facebook groups or ring up a friend rather than just Googling the answers to some of the questions around gardening. So we garden here at Ecoburbia every morning, whatever, whoever woofers here gardens. And 
our tiny house is rented to someone who does two hours work every day in lieu of rent. And so we ha- usually there's three or four of us all working in the garden between about uh, in winter about seven and nine. And that is an important aspect of our work day. Like it's seen as part, it's not seen as a sort of extra little thing that you do on the side, but it's seen as as important as me going out and delivering workshops or Tim doing music gigs or sand sculpture or the other things that he does. For me, it also brings in that appreciation for food because going to a grocery store and, you know, buying bags full of stuff versus growing a tomato and, oh my goodness, like I've been complaining about this for some time. I thought I was an amazing gardener back in Queensland. My tomato trees were so amazing. The plants were fantastic. And then I came to Perth and like, I honestly, I can't keep anything alive. (laughs) So, you know, once you realize that how much love, how much water, how much effort it takes to actually grow that tomato, you are definitely not going to throw it out or waste it. You are going to savor every last bit of whatever you've grown. So I think that kind of brings us to the waste aspect as well. You know, you're not going to waste as much. No, and I think also the other thing that that does is it makes you appreciate organic food and organic growers of food. And so you don't mind paying $2.99 for organic carrots when you can get them at Coles for 99 cents. Like how the hell do they grow carrots for 99 cents? Like that's ridiculous. And so it means that you have an appreciation that means you're able, if you're financially able to support food industries that we need to be moving into in the future. Exactly. There's so many reasons to to grow a garden. I'm looking forward to getting some some new seedlings and everything uh, set up and planting a little bit more native, uh, seeing that I've killed half of our garden, but we're getting there slowly. It's a learning curve. <laughs> and at EcoBurbia, you guys have set up entire water system and electricity as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Like, where's your water from and how do you get power? So we have a few sources of water. We have a bore here. The bore flushes the toilet and waters the garden. We're very lucky because we're very close to the coast and there's a spring underneath us that runs straight down to the ocean again. And I feel like I'm borrowing that water, watering my plants with it, and then it's going back down into the limestone to head back into that spring. So we're lucky in that we're not depleting a wetlands or that kind of situation. So I'm quite comfortable with using the bore. Yeah. We also have a very large water tank at the front of the house, a 50,000 litre water tank. And the house, all the house roofs and a few other roofs on the property feed into that. And then we have an 8,000 litre tank out the back. And we don't use that for watering the garden. The most inefficient way to use rainwater is to use it on your garden because the tank fills up in winter. You not, don't need to water in winter, so it sits there full all winter and then you use it for about two weeks in summer. <laughs> the best thing to do is actually feed it through your whole house. So all our showers, drinking water, any other water needs in the house are fed through that rainwater. 
And we also have a grey water system. So all the showers and the laundry feed through to a large pit at the front of the property. And every time someone has a shower, that flows down. And then there's a switch that then switches that back up onto the fruit trees at the back of the property. So quite a few systems for dispersal of water, dispersal of wastewater, and quite a few in-house systems that we use just with buckets where mm. specific plants are watered grey water from our kitchen side. That sounds really, really interesting and very worth looking into, especially for the rainwater, like, you know, because that's one of the things that I was always looking at is like, oh, if we just capture the rainwater, we can water our plants. But like you said, there's so many more opportunities to actually use it. If you put in even a small tank, even a 50,000 litre tank, you can be off mains for all winter. Wow. So, because, you know, it, it rains, fills up, you have a shower, you do some washing, goes down, etc. And you, so it goes up and down like that. Now, it's not going to last you over summer. This summer was the first summer where we went through. We had a couple of rain events in the middle of summer, which meant that we managed to go through without having to use the main. And that wasn't our intention. Our intention was sort of to be as water sufficient as we could be, but we never, we, it wasn't our goal to sort of cut off the mains water. Yeah. With everything that you guys do, you also do a lot of inspirational talks. And like you've mentioned earlier, the Living Smart course was one that I did. And we kind of covered a lot about your house, your design, and with also the water and the electricity. But yeah, I would love for you to actually tell our crazy bits a little bit more about, you know, some of these talks and courses that you do as well. Living smart is our favorite thing to do because living smart of all the things we do is the one that actually leads to behavior change. And that's what I'm most interested in. So I'm very hesitant to do talks where they want to roll me on, be quite funny. They want me to be the funny end of the conference or whatever it is. And then no one does anything or happens to do anything. And so I'm always kind of including that at the end of stuff. So living smart is my favorite thing to do. And I don't know if your listeners know much about the Living Smart course. Have you talked about it? No, not yet. So, yeah, so if you could tell us more about that. So Living Smart's a a seven-week program. We go for about two and a half hours once a week and we cover living simply, waste, water, power, transport, gardening for food, gardening for biodiversity, healthy home, healthy you and community. And the key to Living Smart, or one of the keys to it, is that it's got a differentiated curriculum. So what we cover depends on what that particular group wants and is interested in. So it means it stays very alive for the facilitator because they're always coming up with something new, having to do something different. And it means it's very relevant to the actual group and wherever it is that they're up to. The course challenges you at the end of every session to set a goal, to actually even write down what is it that you're going to do. And then at the beginning of the next week, there's kind of this social pressure because you get together with other people and say, what have I done? Yeah. So at the end of the course, what we get as feedback is always exactly the same. It's I liked meeting like-minded people and realizing I wasn't the only one that wanted to make changes. And I liked actually doing something and being able to celebrate and share that with other people. So that's why the course is so wonderful. We do a lot of two-hour workshops as well. So it might be food preserving, solar passive house design, water, 
basic gardening things. We do a whole plethora of things in the area of sustainability as little short to our workshops as well. We do a lot of them. And I'll basically talk to any group really about sort of aspects of what we're doing here, especially if we can share more about ecoperbia. It's about a third of the income that we have here. And so we're not totally fully dependent on it, but it certainly helps out with running life as well. Exactly. Oh, I love that. And yeah, so I'm going to link all of that up from your website on the show notes as well. So our crazy birds can go right there. So we've covered quite a lot, but something that's so important is obviously community. So what I wanted to know from you is like for our crazy birds, wherever they live in whichever country it might be, what are some of your tips to kind of help them build community right where we are? I think that's such a varied question because it depends on what community you're in, depends on what your own skills and interests are. Are you a really outgoing person? Are you more of an introvert? So, I mean, what I'd say is find the favourite person in your street, invite them around for a cup of coffee and say, really interested in growing community. For me, it's for the following reasons. Are you as well? And what do you reckon we could do? And just start from there too with two little brainstorms. With the West Beaky Bunch, I did that with a lady called Kerry Page. And what we decided was we would just organise six months of events and we just figured out what we're going to do like that. She organised one. I organised the other one. We put flyers out. We collected email addresses and it kind of just started, started really from there. The opposite of what they tell you to do in the book. So there was no wide vision. There was no getting in everyone on board to this vision. It was just, oh, let's just do some stuff and have some fun and see what comes up. I love so that. A coffee, coffee and a cup of tea to have a co-conspirator, I reckon, is the best way to start. Awesome. So, yeah, just go ahead and, you know, take that first leap and just, just do it and see how it goes. And, Shani, for you guys at Eric, Ecoburbia, what is next? Oh my God, Mariska, this is such an interesting question. My partner is a big one into goal setting and he sits down every five years and says, this is where I want my life to be in five years time. He's right at the end, or he was about two or three years ago at the end of a five-year cycle and he hasn't written the next five years because we feel like we have achieved what it was that we dreamt would happen. So I, on the other hand, am much more of a fly by the seat of your pants. Let's see what opportunities come. I don't know where the next direction might be. So he's kind of stuck in this, oh, my God, what's coming next? But at the same time, really content. So I think we're at a point, I think your life is often like the seasons. You know, you have big, fruitful summers where everything's bursting out of the soil and producing lots of veggies and then the winter might be a little bit less and so it's a time of quiet and reflection so I think ecoburby is in that time of quiet and reflection it hasn't gone down but it's just maintaining itself and we're going to see where the next bit goes the only thing we have agreed this is our seventh renovation together in 19 years we have agreed that we are not taking on another renovation project. So we're here for the long <laughs> Oh, Amazing. Well, our crazy birds can keep an eye on your social media and your website for any new things that's to come. 
Shani, what has been one of your most important decisions that you've made around Mama Earth? I think uh, quitting full-time work back in 2008. Yeah. Well, and I'll continue on from that because I think what that gives you is time. So we do an exercise in Living Smart where one of the questions we ask you is, what would you change about the world if you could? And I always say time because I think when you give people the time and the space, they do the right thing. So we were talking earlier about how it's just little steps. People need to realise that they morally have to do something. But if people don't have the time in their space to allow themselves to do that, they won't see the benefits of doing that. And so what quitting full-time work gave me was the time to be able to actually see a different sort of future, not just for myself, but for my street, for my neighbourhood and for my local community. Love that. And now we are going to move into our final five. First one is, what is one social media account or publication that you follow? My local buy nothing group. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Can't get through the day without looking at that. (laughs) And what is your hope for Mama Earth going forward? I hope that people will develop a hope and I hope that that hope leads to the sort of working together and belief that human nature will actually pull us out of this. And what advice can you give our crazy birds this week to actually help out Mama Earth? Go and do a Living Smart course. And what is one sustainability fact that you like to use in a room with people that is not yet on a sustainable journey? Um, I like to tell them that to change a social norm, whether it be getting people to use less plastic or join in their local community or whatever sustainable change you want, it only takes 15% of the people to be able to do that. So we tend to think once half the people are doing something, it will become the normal thing to do. Mm. But we only 15%. Suddenly that seems manageable. Exactly. Yeah. 15% sounds like like doable. Wow. I didn't know that. That's that's really a great one. Thanks for sharing that one. And Shani, where can people actually find you and Ecoburbia? So we've got a compulsory website. We have a Facebook. We've ju- I've just started using Instagram. We have a cup of tea every morning here at 11 a.m. that anyone is invited to. So if you live in the Beaconsfield area, you're more than welcome just to drop in. You can take a chance or give us a ring and say, I want to come on Tuesday at 11 o'clock. We do a four times a year. We do that tour. Or if you want to come and volunteer, we always have volunteers that come and it might be a once-off thing or it might be that they come once a week and do some gardening or some other work with us and that's a really great way to get to know a small person as well. Oh awesome that sounds that sounds really really amazing thank you so much and I'm going to link all of that up in the show notes as well so our crazy birds can head over there and just click and they will find you. Shani, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. And looking forward to see how you guys continue with your journey. Thank you, Mariska. It's been lovely talking to you today. And that's a wrap. Huge thank you for our amazing guests for being on the podcast and for sharing their journey with us. You can find the show notes of this episode on the mamaearthtalk.com's website. 
The biggest thank you goes out to all of you crazy birds for listening to the podcast. If you have not already listened to all of the episodes, you can go back to a few of them. You will absolutely love them. I really enjoyed recording every single one of them. And I really hope that you enjoy listening to them. There's over a hundred episodes. So if you feel a little bit lost on which one to listen to next, maybe select one of the episodes with guests that you might want to know more of and start from there. If you enjoy the episodes, why not tell a friend about the podcast and maybe share an episode with them? Let them know that we are here and we are waiting for them with open arms And they are all very welcome to join the crazy birds globally. If you have a question for me, please send them over. The best way to get in contact with me would probably be a DM on Instagram. You can either send it to my personal, which is at Zero Waste Mariska, or the podcast, which is at Mama Earth Talk, or send me an email at hello at mamaearthtalk.com. If there's a particular guest or topic that you would like to hear on the podcast, let me know. I love to hear from all you crazy birds. New episodes are uploaded every second Monday, so make sure to subscribe that you do not miss a thing. Mama Earth has a voice and it's us crazy birds.